The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Yesterday was Mother's Day, and I wanted to look for some Stoic writings that had something to do with Mother's Day, and I remembered that Seneca wrote a long letter to his mother, Helvia, uh, and the letter is uh, typically referred to as the Consolation to Helvia. Uh, basically, the the circumstances are, uh, well, I'll just read from this, uh, I'm reading from the Moses Hadass uh, translation of the Stoic philosophy of Seneca, Essays and Letters, and he says, in 41 BC, at the beginning of Claudius's reign, Seneca was condemned on a charge of adultery with Julia Livilla, a sister of Caligula and Agrippina, and sentenced to exile in Corisca, oh, sorry, Corsica. Um, and uh, he wrote this piece to his mother, probably in the second year of his seven-year banishment. Um, I looked in Ryan Holiday's biographical book, The the Lives of the Stoics, just to see if I could get more information. Looks like it's not exactly clear what the basis was of this charge. It's possible he had, uh, he committed adultery, but, you know, when, when Caligula condemns you to death uh, or to exile, Caligula was not the most stable of people, to put it mildly. So I, w- I wouldn't, and then this is also not the first time that Seneca in his life is, uh, is, is targeted for some sort of, uh, of, you know, uh, is framed or set up. So anyway, I don't know what the circumstances are, uh, but this was a letter that he wrote to his mother to console her. Uh, so I, again, I chose this because of the, the thematic tie to Mother's Day. Uh, and then I found this passage in the beginning where Seneca explains how he's going to console her. And as you can tell by the title of this episode, it's a little ruthless, okay? And I'll uh, I'll read that, and I had a, just a couple of thoughts on it. So so this is uh, in the section two of the letter, at least in this Moses Hadass edition. I don't know if there are actual sections in the letter. So Seneca writes, I make no question that my power over you will be greater than your griefs, though to the, though to the wretched no power has precedent over griefs. But I shall not clash with your grief straight away. First, I will take its side and heap rich fuel upon it to arouse it. I will expose and tear open the wounds which have already cicatrized, which I had to look up, which means become scars. Someone may object. What kind of consolation is this to recall afflictions now obliterated and to parade a whole series of sorrows to a mind scarcely able to endure one? But the objector should reflect that maladies grown so malignant that they outpace their usual remedies can frequently be treated by contraries. So I shall bring to bear upon your spirit its every grief and sorrow. My course of treatment will not be gentle, but will involve cautery and surgery. What shall I accomplish? A spirit with such a history of grief will be ashamed to show distress at a single wound in a body covered with scars. Tears and incessant sighs are for dainty spirits unmanned by long prosperity. At the slightest stirring of discomfort, they are prostrated. But people who have passed all their years in affliction should bear even the heaviest blows with unflagging fortitude. This is the one benefit of constant misfortune. Eventually, it hardens those whom it persistently afflicts. Now, I'm not going to go into him actually uh, <laughs> doing this <laughs> to his mother, uh, but he does talk about, he just then goes and, and reminds her of all of the misfortunes that she suffered in her life. Uh, for example, that her mother died as soon as, as soon as she was born, and so she was raised um, you know, as a uh, somewhat as an orphan. And uh, then her uh, her... Or, or sorry, um, her brother. Yeah, it's. I guess I assume it's her brother because Seneca says it's his uncle. Uh, then, uh, then died, and then 
the then her husband died and you know lots and lots of deaths and and misfortunes and uh, and then he he makes good on his promise you know he starts from there and then and then consoles her which i actually haven't finished reading the letter yet but i want to focus on this part today so so let's just go back to that strategy here of saying that uh the that I shall not clash with your grief straight away. First, I will take it side and heap rich fuel upon it to arouse it. So first thing that that made me think about is really in Hilchos uh, Velos, in the laws of mourning, that uh, it, it, it's not it's not directly relevant, but I do think it reflects this truth. I mean, I'm just going to read it anyway. Uh, the Rambam in Hilcho, in the Mishnah Torah, Sefer Shoftim Hilchos Avel Perak Yud Gimel, says, Al Yiskash Adam Al Mezal die. person should not experience the the, uh, uh, the the death of someone close he, literally he shouldn't be hard on himself excessively over over someone who is dead as it is stated you shall do not cry over the dead and do not nod for uh, for him Klomar, yes or me die which means excessively this is the way of the world and someone who afflicts himself over the way of the world is a fool Ella, rather, Ketad Yase, what should he do? Shlosha Lebechi, three days for crying. Shiva Lehesped, seven days for eulogizing, meaning meaning a total of seven days. Shloshim Yom Letisporos Ulishar Hamisha, and 30 days total for refraining from cutting your hair and the other five uh, um, five uh, uh, morning practices of uh, of sitting Shloshim. Okay, and then in the next halacha, he says, Komi Shalomis Abo Kamoshitivu Chachamim Harize Achazari. Anyone who does not mourn as the sages commanded, such a person is cruel uh, or indifferent. Rather, he should fear and worry and analyze his actions, and return in teshuva, in repentance. And if one of the uh, members of a social group dies, then the entire social group should uh, should worry in this manner. Um, okay, so in other words, so the thing that... that, uh, that that uh, I that caught my my mind's eye here is the fact that uh, that there's a balance, right? Is that that distressing over a death excessively is, as the Rambam says, foolish because that is death is the way of the world. Um, but at the same time, you should not go to the other the other end of the spectrum, which is to to not distress over the dead. In other words. A person could say, well, you know, people die all the time. <laughs> you know who would say this? Epictetus would say this. <laughs> Epictetus would say, like, you know, if an earthenware pot breaks, then you should say, uh, then, you you know, you should tell yourself, well, did I think it was, uh, it, it could never break? Why why should I be upset about it? And if your wife or son dies, then you should say, oh, did I think that they were immortal? So, again, that, that's, I mean, we, we've, I, I've, uh, I, I've shared my objections to Epictetus in the past, but, but that's certainly not the approach that the Torah takes. But the Torah does recognize there is a reality to, uh, that you shouldn't mourn excessively. But at the same time, if you don't allow yourself the, the period to mourn in, then that's also going to do you harm. So the Torah, so, the, so, you know, Chazal, the sages, uh, uh, specify it, that you have three days where you, you you sit in the grief in its most intense phase and cry. Well, really, you have you have the day of uh, you know between the time of the burial of, of the of of the death and then the burial uh, where you're an onain, which I didn't read from the Rambam, where you are really sitting in your grief to the point where you're not even doing positive mitzvot. And then you have three days of of bechi of crying, and then shiva for the eulogizing, which is less to a lesser degree, and then 
the 30 days for the sitting shloshim and doing all those morning practices. So the point is, is that halacha does not compel you to flee or deny or suppress your emotions. It, but it gives us, and, and nor does it let you wallow in them in a completely unrestrained manner that would push you to excess, but it, it takes the middle path and allows you to, uh, it allows you to grieve in a manner where you are, you are giving expression to your emotions, but it also redirects your thoughts in a, in, in a healthy way to process them correctly, which is why the Ramam talks about doing tshuva and using this as an opportunity to reflect on your own mortality and your own, uh, way that you live. And what, what, and obviously there's much more to say about this. I mean, this is really the entire psychology of, of the laws of mourning in Judaism. And But the, the point in regards to Stoicism here is that I, I do think that the, the very fact that Seneca takes this approach uh, is uh, shows a difference between Seneca and Epictetus. Again, Epictetus would flee from from the from from feeling the uh, the the emotions and and say that that's just idiotic, you know. And and Seneca is getting his mother to reflect on her grief, uh, and not just the grief from the present, but the grief from the past in order to better prepare ourselves for the present, okay? And that, that to me is a different approach. This is not the, the you know, Epictetus, I, I'm, the more I learn about Epictetus, the more I'm blaming him for the, the giving Stoicism a bad name for, uh, you know, promoting this belief that Stoicism means that you don't feel things. Uh, and Seneca is, is clearly not doing that here, okay? But he's saying that you should feel things in a way that ultimately leads to a more accurate perception of reality and a better, and puts you into a better position to cope with your feelings. So this brings us to the next point. Is he says that he's going to heap, uh, uh, add fuel to the fire of her grief, and uh, he says that, that might seem to be ruthless, but what is it going to accomplish? So he says that since the, uh, his mom has a history of grief, uh, I mean, it's funny. I, I, this is where I really wish I could see the nuances of the original language here, because he says a spirit with such a history of grief will be ashamed to show distress at a single wound in a body covered with scars. So I, I don't know what he means by the word ashamed here, but the way I'm perceiving this, when I think about uh, about this method is, uh, well, I guess I'll use my own life as an example is that I have definitely had, uh, hard and, uh, and difficult and dark periods during my life when bad things have happened. And, uh, when those things first happen, it really can be incapacitating uh, in many ways. But I noticed that the more that the older I get and the more of such experiences I have, then whenever something bad happens, so there's obviously, you know, there's obviously the, the all the fears and insecurities and and uh, and and you know grieving that goes with that. But then there's also a feeling of, okay, this is this is not my first rodeo. You know, I've I've experienced difficult things, and this has uh, and and I've made it through, and I've become better from it. And I think that's what Seneca means when he's saying that you'll be ashamed. Not that he's trying to shame his mother, but that he's trying to make her aware of the fact that she has been through tremendous tragedies. And again, this, we're talking deaths here. And and Seneca, in this case, is not, he's consoling her over his exile. And yeah, exile back then was a very, you know, was comparable to death. Uh, and, you know, who knew who knew if Seneca was going to die in exile? But uh, but he's telling he's telling his mom that, you know, she's lost a mother, she's lost a, a brother, she's lost a husband. And he's trying to remind her, he's really trying to remind her that she is strong and to, to tap into that strength in order to deal with what's going on now. Uh, and, and he says that this is a benefit. One of the benefits, uh, he concludes, this is w the one benefit of constant misfortune. Eventually it hardens those to whom it persistently afflicts. And again, I think hardens does not, should not be taken in the stoic sense of making you unfeeling, but toughens you 
in, in, in terms of the fact that it shows you that you are capable of facing these things and, and surviving. And, um, and I, I think that this, I, I don't think you need actual misfortunes for this to happen with, I mean, part of Seneca's, um, one of Seneca's techniques that he talks about a lot, uh, I forgot, I'm forgetting the Latin name for this, but, uh, but, um, like rehearsing, rehearsing tragedy, uh, where you, you can do this mentally, um, and, uh, and, you know, mentally prepare yourself for the worst outcome. Oh, what is it called? Something malorum. I forgot what it is. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and even though you haven't suffered the tragedies, if you are constantly thinking about it, about what can happen and rehearsing it in your head and, uh, and allowing yourself to prepare for it, then when the tragedy actually strikes, then it won't be as, uh, uh, you know, you'll have prepared for it. It won't be as impactful in a negative way, in a detrimental way. And um, and again, that is not going to necessarily substitute for the emotional impact of a real tragedy, but it is it is a technique that you can use even though you haven't had that experience yet. And um, I, uh, I, I'm reminded of, I'm actually not going to give away, I'm very machmir, I'm strict when it comes to movie spoilers, so I'm going to give an extremely vague reference that will only be understood by those who know the movie. But there's a movie in which there is an unexpected thing that happens at the climax of the movie, and a bunch of characters deal with it in in ways where it causes them to like fall apart or be surprised. And there's one character who, as the thing is happening, says, this is something that happens. And and he has this calm look on his face, and the fact that he has mentally prepared himself for this, and and knows that this is this is something that happens, that allows him to stay in a state of calm, uh, despite this like weird, crazy thing that's happening. So, um, where are we going to conclude with this? Because we're almost done with our allotted time here. Uh, I guess the moral of the story, the two morals of the story that I'm drawing out of this, I had more points, but I'm, we'll save those for some other time. Is that there is a benefit to feeling the grief and not running from it. And the the grief can, uh, it, it, you know, um, focusing on misfortunes that have happened to you can remind you that you are capable of dealing with these things. And mentally preparing for things that you haven't experienced yet can also help with that all by it to a lesser extent. But if you practice them, then they can, they can uh, they're, they're the closest substitute to actually suffering the misfortunes. That is it for today's episode. If you've gained from what you've learned here today and would like to support my production of even more Torah content, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Schneeweiss. Link is in the description. Uh, thank you to my listeners for listening, and thank you to my patrons for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.